0: This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations,
1: scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research.
0: Physical anthropologist Cynthia Bell has performed groundbreaking research on human evolution and adaptation to the environment, particularly in places where there is little air to breathe. She is known for her work among indigenous populations of the Tibetan, Andean, and East African plateaus, and how these populations have adapted to harsh, thin-air environments. She joined the faculty of Case Western Reserve University in 1976, where she is the Distinguished University Professor and the S. I. Del Pyle Professor of Anthropology. She was elected to the NAS in 1996.
1: When you were a child, were you interested in science? I don't think I was particularly
0: interested in science. I was interested in everything. You know, looking back on it, I guess I had the, the questioning does that really, is that really true sort of uh, attitude towards many things when I was growing up. I liked my science classes. I went to college thinking I was going to learn about life. And so I, I guess, although without having put a label on, yes, I want to be a scientist, I have
1: been interested always. You had the inquiring mind that it required? Mm, yes. And you must have been interested in people? Yes. Populations Not Not, not
0: particularly. Well, I was, I had an interest in different parts of the world, so maybe that was what part of what drew me to anthropology.
1: Well, your research takes you to some very wonderful parts of the world. Yes. Tibet, mm-hmm. uh, Bolivia, many other places. China. Yep. Mm-hmm. Places that have high altitude, <laughs> indigenous populations. Your work, from what I can understand of it, straddles anthropology and physiology. It
0: does. It fits completely within the... Paradigm of anthropology. We have several subfields in anthropology. Physical anthropology, which is what I am, is interested in the biological history and the biological nature of people. And so I'm a physical anthropologist. Uh, cultural anthropology and archaeology and linguistics are the other subfields. So, in that sense, uh, in the sense that anthropology has those four fields, I'm perfectly comfortable in anthropology. It is the case that I work with physiologists, I work with physicians. I also have worked with ecologists, I've also worked with cultural anthropologists. It really depends on the particular question.
1: You got your B.A. in biology at the University of Pennsylvania? Yes. Did you have a special field you wanted to go into by then, or were you interested in evolution particularly? I was interested
0: in evolution and ecology. And my the fall semester of my senior year... I took a required social science course. We have these things called distribution requirements. That was what they used to be called. And one had to take a certain number of social sciences and humanities and so forth. And so as my social science, I took physiological adaptability in the anthropology department. And within two weeks, I knew I had found my calling.
1: It was sort of by happenstance you took the class? Yes. That was a lucky call. It
0: was. (laughs) I, I knew very soon that that was what I wanted to do.
1: This was during getting your BA. Mm-hmm. Did you do any specific work while within that, or was that not until you moved on?
0: It wasn't until I went to graduate school. You know, I learned about this field in uh, then, and so I took another course the next semester, and I applied to graduate school and went to graduate school. and here I am. Pennsylvania State. That's right. So you stayed in the area? I I did. I had finally trained my family to understand that I was at the University of Pennsylvania, not Penn State, and then I went to Penn State.
1: (laughs) Completely confused them? Right. How long did it take to train them back? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that part was easy. (laughs) What research projects did you take on? When, in graduate school, I
0: studied with Paul Baker, who was one of the founders of a field in physical anthropology called human adaptability that specifically focused on how people adapt to their environments, whether it's the physical environment, or the social cultural environment, or climate, or whatever. And he had been working on how people adapt to high altitudes. And so I became involved in that immediately, and the summer after my first year of graduate school, he ran a field school for his incoming students in Peru. As it happens, it was not at high altitude, it was at low altitude in Peru, studying high altitude natives who had moved to low altitude to see how people adjusted to the relief of hypoxic stress. And so that was my first exposure to field work, and I liked it. And I've been doing that ever since.
1: <laughs> I
0: guess you could say I haven't moved on yet, but we've, we've learned a lot. But
1: <laughs> it's a pretty rich field, though—the world of hypoxia. Isn't it? Yes, the world. It there's a lot of it. Can you give us a definition of hypoxia and what what it means to someone living at sea level versus people living in the higher altitudes? Mm-hmm. At high
0: altitude, the hypoxia is called hypobaric hypoxia, and it results from the lower barometric pressure at altitude. So, for example, if you are at 4,000 meters of altitude, which is a little over 13,000 feet, every lungful of air has about 60-62% of the oxygen molecules that we have here at sea level. And that's hypoxia, less than the normal amount of oxygen. And what that means is, as a result of fewer oxygen molecules in the air, there are fewer oxygen molecules to diffuse into your bloodstream to be carried around to provide oxygen to working tissues. And so the ambient hypoxia then becomes physiological hypoxia. You mentioned here at sea level. Here at sea level, we can also become hypoxic if you just held your breath, for example, or people become hypoxic uh, during sleep uh, periodically. Our breathing slows. If it occurs infrequently during the night, it's uh, normal. If it occurs very frequently, then uh, there are conditions called sleep apnea and so
1: forth. And I guess uh, when you do exercise, you can...
0: It's hard for a normal... You could, uh, in exercise, become hypoxic. For most of us, who are not in super-duper shape, (laughs) our oxygen delivery system can easily keep up with our cardiovascular system. Uh, People who are in really, really good physical condition can actually stress themselves.
1: How much have you had to go into the more reductionist biology to study the oxygen intake, the hemoglobin, and all of this in in your field? It seems like you span very broad and very specific areas with this. Yes. Um, That's
0: part of what makes it fun, is Mm -hmm. that that it's very integrated. Because you can start with what causes someone to have a certain level of hemoglobin all the way up to what causes a population to have a certain average hemoglobin concentration. And so it does require having the ability to kind of move back and forth between those levels, or to find collaborators who can
1: <laughs> help you move back and forth between <laughs> those those levels. So you do a little of both, I guess? I do, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I assume then that this is something a population adapts to. They need to in order to survive at their level, their altitude.
0: Yes. Uh, the uh, the Spaniards, the conquistadores who first went to high altitudes in the 1500s in Peru noted very graphically the difference between their own reaction to being on the at high altitude in Peru and that of the Andean highlanders. So at one at a kind of just story anecdotal level, the difference between people like us going to a high altitude us being low altitude natives and yeah. and highlanders has been known starting in the late 1800s there began to be a few physiologic investigations there's a great one where someone studied you know one dog one sheep, you know, one, one young boy and himself, you know, that, that that sort of sense, and discovered that they had, at high altitude they had more uh, hemoglobin, more red blood cells, than they did at low altitude. And people have been studying hemoglobin concentration ever since.
1: Is this work from the Andes where most of the early information on hypoxia came from?
0: For a very long time, let's say from the end of the 1800s up until about the 1970s, All of our information on indigenous populations came from the Andes. And even nowadays, some textbooks will give you a brief description of how highlanders adapt to high altitude, and the description will say one does it with high levels of hemoglobin compared to sea level, with large barrel-shaped chests compared to sea level, large lungs, and these characteristics are true of Andean Highlanders. Well in the 1970s we finally got the opportunity to study some other indigenous high altitude populations. Nepal opened up for uh, investigators and I was lucky enough to go to Nepal in 1977 and then started doing work with uh, Tibetans who lived in Nepal. The northern border of Nepal is at the same altitude. is just the Nepalese extension of, of the Tibetan plateau. And one of the surprising things was these characteristics that we associate with Andean Highlanders we did not find among the Tibetans. The physical... The physical characteristics and the, and the physiologic. So we did not find the high hemoglobin concentrations in the large barrel-shaped chests and so forth. And that took everyone by such surprise that the uh, people who are this scientific skeptics would say things like, "Well, they're all malnourished," and, and uh, you know that that's something to examine. So slowly, slowly, we were able to eliminate alternative explanations for uh, why the, the Tibetans did not have high hemoglobin concentrations, they, and so forth. And so we came to realize that these two different populations in different parts of the world had adapted differently.
1: Evolved physiologically. Separately, basically. Well
0: that's an interest that's the hypothesis is that two separate ancestral populations went to altitude and have adapted differently. Well that's a very different view of how to adapt to high altitude than we had before, where we thought that human biology I don't think we explicitly thought it, but implicitly the idea was people went to altitude and there was one response. Now we know people can go at altitude, and there are two responses. There's even a hint that people in Ethiopia have yet a third pattern of adaptation. So it's highly likely that the three different times that people have migrated from sea level to high altitudes, it's been independent experiments in microevolution. And, of course, that's what we deal with in anthropology.
1: And that's very big news in evolution.
0: That's very exciting. It is, because... There are discussions about whether or not, if you, quote, rerun the tape of life, do you get the same answer. In this case, you definitely
1: do not get the same answer. Which would imply that probably in many cases, if not all, you yep. wouldn't. Now, obviously, all of these populations, all three that have been studied, have adapted yes, just differently. You mentioned the Andean adaptation is the hemoglobin mm-hmm. concentration. What are the other adaptive mechanisms that the other populations yeah. you've studied have
0: Right. In the Andes, the key thing seems to be the high hemoglobin concentration. In Tibet, it seems as though people have adapted more by emphasizing the respiratory system. For example, the amount of air people breathe per minute uh, is the, the minute ventilation, it's called, is higher in Tibet than it is in the Andes, and it's higher in Tibet than it is at sea level. So that's one way in which they've adapted. Um, Another way in which the Tibetans have adapted that the Indian Highlanders haven't is that they have a fairly brisk hypoxic ventilatory response. Now, a hypoxic ventilatory response is an increase in your breathing that occurs when you become hypoxic. And we can give standardized tests. We can just decrease the amount of oxygen in the air you breathe, and we can measure how much your breathing increases. When people did that in the Andes, there was very little response, a very low response. It's called a blunted hypoxic ventilatory response. And again, that was thought to be normal. It was thought to be a normal part of adaptation to high altitude. And the explanation was, well, if you're always hypoxic, and you had a a brisk hypoxic ventilatory response, then you'd be breathing heavily all the time, and it would cost too much energy and so forth. Well, in Tibet, they do breathe a lot all the time, but we know that they can do
1: it. So their bodies presumably have adapted to this form of
0: breathing. Yes. Another thing that we've seen in uh, Tibetan and Andean highland populations is that they have, compared to sea level, high levels of exhaled nitric oxide. And the Tibetans have more exhaled, higher concentrations of exhaled nitric oxide than Andean highlanders. And so that led us to think a couple of things. One is that we see relatively high exhaled nitric oxide in both high altitude populations compared to sea level. So that suggests there might be some adaptive value since it's two independent populations but we see a much higher level in the Tibetans than we do in the Andeans. So again, we see this contrast between the two samples. And so the question then is, what good does it do you to have a lot of nitric oxide... Expelled. Expelled, (laughs) yes, right. Well, presumably, (laughs) they're synthesizing a lot, because you synthesize it in, in the lung, and then it diffuses out in all directions. And so we're making the inference that... When, we're, when people are, are exhaling a lot, it also means that a lot is being synthesized and being absorbed. Mm-hmm. And one of the uh, main functions of uh, nitric oxide is vasodilation. So if having high levels of nitric oxide means there is vasodilation in the lungs, then there can be increased cardiac output, increased blood flow to the lungs, and increased blood flow to the rest of the body. So that would be a way of counteracting having low levels of oxygen in the blood would be if you can increase the blood flow.
1: So it's a balancing mechanism of sorts. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the Ethiopians and that I guess is not completely, the data is not all processed yet but are the hints that there's a similarity in this sense?
0: The Ethiopians are a puzzle for which we have very little data and the Ethiopians have sea level values of, of hemoglobin concentration. The Ethiopians, at least the ones that I measured using the techniques that I measured, and, and I'm being careful here because there's some question about those techniques, don't even show evidence of being hypoxic. Hmm. You, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, and they're at what altitude? Is well, I, I
0: measured people 11,500 feet, so they were. They they should have. Been hypoxic. I was certainly hypoxic, being <laughs> measured by the same machines that I was measuring them with. And we were measuring hypoxia using a device called a pulse oximeter. And what that does is it shines a, a light through the finger, and the light going in and the light coming out on the other side of the finger are both measured, and an algorithm uh, calculates how much of the hemoglobin is carrying oxygen. It's a nifty machine. <laughs> well, it's wonderful. It's been wonderful for high-altitude studies because in the past, in order to get a measure of the same thing, it was necessary to do an arterial stick, and, uh, you know, to measure arterial blood. And that's hard to do on a large number of people, on men and women and children and, and so forth. So the pulse oximeter has made a big difference in high-altitude studies. Because it isn't a direct measure, though, there's some question about could something have been interfering with my measurement.
1: You mean because it's not actually because touching it's not on the, the blood? Right, because it isn't drawing.
0: actually drawing blood and measuring right then and there the oxygen saturation and the oxygen content. So in the Ethiopian case, because there's only one set of data... It really needs to be confirmed. It needs to be confirmed in some other samples, and it needs to be confirmed with this extra, more invasive measurement technique. But it does look as though, if if it is confirmed, what it means is that the Ethiopians have somehow adapted so that their oxygen uptake from the atmosphere is much more efficient than the other two populations, and then ours is. And do you look at body type and see similarities, or are they quite different? They're very different. Andean Highlanders have the barrel-shaped chest, they're short, they have large chests, they tend to be heavier than Tibetans who, who are a little bit taller and more slender, the Ethiopians are taller and more slender yet, so body
1: type varies enormously. I would wonder if there were direct correlations between say the hemoglobin, and the, the body types might be more the same, you can't even say that I guess. There could be other factors.
0: Yeah, I don't think there would be any reason to think that tall, slender and short, barrel-shaped chest, let's just say, is as two extremes yeah. for Ethiopian and Andean, I don't think there would be
1: any reason to think that that would be associated with how much hemoglobin you mm-hmm. had. It's just adapting for different environmental factors probably that have brought along these other body types.
0: Right, if you look at East Africans the Ethiopians fit right in with the morphology that one associates with East Africans, the same with Andean Highlanders, is that they look, they fit into the range of variation of American Indians very nicely.
1: Ideally would it be good to find other populations or to study other populations also at high altitude and keep trying to find if there are any similarities, and then go from there to see what's causing them?
0: There are several new avenues. If there another population that would be interesting, and that is interesting, it's been studied to a certain extent, are populations such as Europeans who have moved to high altitude in the Andes. There is a fairly sizable European community, for example, in Bolivia, in La Paz. So they're of interest because they've only lived there for a generation or, or two. In Leadville, Colorado, it, there's a little, small population of people of European d- descent living there, although that tends to be a polluted environment, so mm-hmm. there's a little bit of confounding there. In um, Lhasa, and around Lhasa, there are Han Chinese who have been there for a generation. So those populations are interesting because they have not been exposed to the opportunity for natural selection.
1: Have they been studied yet? or They
0: have. They have. And among them, there's a fair similarity, which suggests that the similarity in low-altitude populations that go to high-altitude, as opposed to the contrast among the indigenous populations, really is additional indirect evidence that selection has been working on the indigenous populations to produce these different adaptations.
1: So it really gives us a hint of how we evolve.
0: That we have. Then the question becomes, how can we come up with the study designs to get at the genetic bases of these traits, like hemoglobin concentration, like how much you breathe, how much nitric oxide you exhale. These are all what are called complex traits. They are not simple traits like your ABO blood group. Let's say where we know four phenotypes, and we can associate them with genotypes and so forth so we have to use different techniques in the case of these complex traits and that requires doing what we've done so far is quantitative genetic approaches where we've done family studies and we get large pedigrees and we get information on large pedigrees and then analyze them statistically to see if there's a familial patterning to let's say having high oxygen saturation and if so if there is familial patterning does it appear to follow some sort of Mendelian pattern.
1: And this was done with high altitude and sea level populations? No, it or? was
0: only done with high altitude. It was done in a Bolivian population and a Tibetan. And at sea level, there's very little variation in oxygen saturation. So you're really talking, no, every, right. we have so much oxygen that uh, it's all, most people are 97, 98% saturated.
1: It's cheap for us.
0: It's cheap, Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, In the Andes, we found no evidence for a a major gene, a major genetic effect on oxygen saturation. But in Tibet, we have. In Tibet, we found that um, about 35 or 40 percent of the variation within a population in this one trait, oxygen saturation of hemoglobin, seems to be accounted for by a major gene for high oxygen saturation. And that was very exciting, because a gene for high oxygen saturation translates into you and I live at the same altitude, but if I have that gene, I'm less stressed than you, which was quite exciting a finding. And then it leads to the hypothesis that natural selection has been acting to increase the frequency of that gene.
1: To diminish stress? Yes,
0: (laughs) because those people would be less stressed. And so the hypothesis is that they're under hypoxic stress, that people who have the major gene for high saturation are less stressed at a given altitude. So presumably they're better able to exercise, their immune systems may function better, women may be able to carry pregnancies more successfully to give birth to heavier offspring, any one of a number of things that would enable that, that would result in an increase in
1: frequency of that gene. You studied also birth weight of different populations. And I think, if I remember correctly, that the Tibetans did have heavier offspring in general. I have studied Indian Highlanders mm-hmm. at
0: altitude. Lorna Moore has studied Tibetan Highlanders mm-hmm. at, in Lhasa. And her interpretation of her data is that Tibetans have heavier birth weights than other high-altitude populations. My interpretation is that Andean and Tibetan Highlanders both have heavier birth weights than Europeans and, and Han Chinese at altitude. She has shown very clearly Tibetan women adapt physiologically to pregnancy very differently than Han Chinese women. That they can modify their blood flow. Tibetan women can modify the amount of blood flowing into the uterus and increase it much more than Han Chinese women at altitude. And so that's probably why the Tibetan women give birth to babies at way more than the Han Chinese.
1: Would this be related in any way to the fact that there is a gene implied in it or genes implied? Well,
0: that would be an interesting hypothesis to test. It could also be related to high levels of nitric oxide and uh, modifying blood flow. So maybe that means that I should go and study changes in nitric, nitric oxide throughout pregnancy at altitude.
1: Uh, This is how the questions are born. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) What are the relative ages of the populations? I don't mean the ages of the people themselves, but how long have these populations been existing in these particular regions, and would that have a bearing on whether there's a genetic component or not? It, It could
0: easily have a bearing. It also could give us an idea of how fast evolution could take place. In the Andes, there's evidence that people have been there since about 10 or 11,000 B.C. Um, in Tibet, until recently, we did not have good evidence. But just last year, there was one site dated to 20,000 years ago on the Tibetan Plateau Now, of course, we don't know if modern-day Tibetans are descended from that one hearth or from that population that left the one hearth, but that was very interesting because it certainly suggests the possibility that Tibetans may have been at altitude for maybe twice as long as Indian Highlanders.
1: And I guess one could guess that there might be a difference in evolution time or evolvability in different populations as well, right? Yes,
0: yeah, it really depends on the genetic variation that the ancestral population took with it. It depends on random mutation that occurred in,
1: in the populations living there. It sounds like you increasingly have to keep your eye on what's going on in the world of genetics. Yes. Yes, uh, absolutely.
0: And it's not only it's population genetics at, at one level, and then it's also how can we take these studies, for example, of a major gene, That's statistically identified. We don't know what the locus is, and we don't know what the biochemistry is. And there are techniques in in doing genome scans and so forth that will enable us to ask these questions. And you're quite right. In order to really answer that question of has there been genetic adaptation, we have to do those studies next.
1: Another question. Well,
0: yes, a lot of these are underway in various stages.
1: I noticed all the different types of research you've done Within this area, but I mean all these different levels, I was wondering if you find certain correlations between one element and another and then you are able to draw any conclusions from that. Any of the many areas that you're covering, are you always kind of keeping in the back of your mind previous research and other areas that you've studied to see if there are correlates there or things that tie these together?
0: I'm always thinking of oxygen delivery and I think of it as... One part of oxygen delivery is oxygen content, and that's how much hemoglobin you have and how much of it is saturated with oxygen. So for a long time we focused on that because it was relatively easy to measure, (laughs) to be honest. Of course, that's the essence of scientific inquiry, that you have to have something you can measure or figure out how to measure it. And then it became increasingly clear that as we kept information on these different populations accumulated, that we needed to be looking at more aspects of oxygen delivery. And now there are better techniques to look at blood flow. So the blood flow question is becoming more interesting. The world of genetics that you mentioned that has also uh, been an inspiration has been the discovery of a, a homeostatic cascade, I guess you would call it. There's a hypoxia-inducible factor 1. That is a transcription factor, a genetic transcription factor that turns on a whole series of genes. It induces the transcription of a whole series of genes when individuals become hypoxic. And it's pretty much studied in the context of acute hypoxia rather than people living at high altitude. Adaptive. But that's actually how I got involved in and interested in measuring nitric oxide because I'm always looking for what can I measure in a healthy population living at high altitude. These are people who live in rural villages and so forth. One doesn't get very invasive. Don't ask for tissue samples (laughs) or something like that. There could be cultural (laughs) issues there. (laughs) Uh, So uh, after looking for a lot of, through a lot of papers about potential phenotypes associated with hypoxia-inducible factor, nitric oxide became, and since it was associated with blood flow, and since there's evidence that hemoglobin, the hemoglobin molecule itself carries the nitric oxide, and that it's very intimately involved in oxygen delivery, and that it just seemed like this is you were talking about tying things together, this this seemed like a, a neat way to tie things together.
1: And this is the I guess they call it HIF one yeah. in short. Mm-hmm. Who was doing the studies on those?
0: Uh, Greg Semenza is the person who uh, Johns Hopkins uh, who does Hopkins? that. Johns Hopkins, yeah. I haven't worked with him. When I started working on nitric oxide, I discovered by chance that uh, one of the people, one of the leading scientists involved in studying uh, pulmonary nitric oxide was down the street from me in Cleveland at the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, so we started collaborating, which at the time in Cleveland was a little bit surprising because Case Western Reserve in the Cleveland Clinic have a historic rivalry. The two institutions do. The scientists don't have that kind of problem, so we started collaborating, and that's been an enormously productive collaboration. Has it helped the two institutions be a little <laughs> Well, actually, the institutions have become more friendly to each other for a number of other reasons.
1: The studies in genetics and at Johns Hopkins, were you seeking out this information, or did you just happen to hear about that? or? Is this something that you, you sort of scan all the time looking for information about these? My yes. You know, I read Science
0: and Nature and PNAS mm-hmm. and the word about HIF started appearing that and I thought and of course I immediately said, yes, this is an interesting thing for high altitude populations. And then word about nitric oxide and that also seemed very relevant to high altitude populations. And then when the two linked together, you know, it seemed, okay, you know, this is an important next step. It's a not the only step, but it certainly was a, a doable one. And it's been informative.
1: There was a Nobel for the nitric yes. oxide. Mm-hmm. So that became very bandwagony after <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I <laughs> must have had a lot of things to read. There's a lot to read, yes. <laughs>
0: there aren't as many studies in normal people of many of these traits which is one of the things that anthropology is interested in is we're interested in the normal range of variation and high altitude is interesting from that standpoint because at altitude you have healthy people who are hypoxic and so the normal values of many traits are outside the normal range of variation here at sea level so it's very interesting physiologically.
1: I guess smokers and non-smokers vary in this way also. Yeah. Smokers
0: already have slightly reduced oxygen saturation because they're carrying carbon
1: monoxide instead of oxygen in their hemoglobin. But presumably that smoking wouldn't be something that would be selected for either in the population. <laughs> oh, no. no, they're, they're under
0: greater stress at altitude, smokers are. Plenty of Tibetan males smoke, though. In many of my studies, I exclude smokers, and so I wind up with... A lot of women
1: <laughs> as com- compared to men, but that must be difficult. I mean, you have to consider if there's a skew of some type. It, I mean, is there some sort of self-selection for smoking men? Well, it's just the men could be completely different from the women, except that they're smoking. You can't really use them as subjects. So, well, I've you can find maybe yeah, a few. Uh, yeah, right. Forty percent maybe don't smoke. So
0: that's that's enough yeah. to get a
1: decent sample. And when you say healthy, is a certain age range you're using also?
0: It varies from study to study. That's an interesting question because you can ask, do people adapt the same way at different stages of the life cycle? Would you expect infants to be adapting in the same way as adolescents, in the same way as the elderly? And not necessarily. So it depends on the study, whether I'm dealing with children or young adults or the full adult
1: age range. The mitochondrial DNA, does that have any relevance in this story?
0: Mitochondrial DNA could for a couple of reasons. One is that it's involved in energy metabolism. And so it's possible that you know, there are maybe mitochondrial variants of mitochondrial genes. And uh, someone is uh, at the University of Michigan is looking at that using samples that I have from these three high-altitude populations. But I don't know the answer yet. The other way in which mitochondrial DNA can be informative is that it can be used to look at the relationship between the high-altitude populations and low-altitude surrounding populations. They might help us get a handle on how long have people been there, what was the likely ancestral population.
1: And that could be pretty and That would important. be
0: informative, yeah. There are more
1: questions than there are answers. Oh I was looking at all these different studies that you've done, and... How long typically do you do a study with a population per project? Well,
0: per project, I might be in the field anywhere from three months to six or eight months, and I go maybe every other year. And then you come back and, and you do the right. I data. have to. Then you have to do the data analysis and get the papers out and write the next grant. And you know, Deep you you've heard that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> typically, do you have several? questions you want answered stacked up that you would say you have several areas of inquiry you want to follow at once and you have to prioritize or I mean it would seem you have such an enormous amount of area to cover.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a very satisfactory answer is it? Yes there are lots of ideas usually and lots of questions. One thing that I do have to prioritize and there are a couple of reasons for it but when you're doing field work in remote areas one thing is that I have to carry all the equipment with me. So that just, you know, there's a certain logistics there. I often travel with, you know, 20 duffel bags, for example. That's a am <laughs> I'm, I'm a joy <laughs> to travel with. <laughs> they love me when they see me coming in. A, last uh, summer, when I had to go through the extra security, I, oh, I felt very bad. I, you know, I held up a huge line of people. Um, so, that's one thing. Another thing is when explaining to people what you're doing and asking people to volunteer their time, there's a little bit of a trade-off in thinking, how much do you want to ask people to do? And how long do you want them to be uh, volunteering? So I do try to prioritize it so that I'm not asking too much, you know, a few to hours. Subject. To To the people who are volunteering, yeah. Mm-hmm otherwise you know i could easily imagine asking people for many hours of time but you really want people fresh
1: that would seem to be a special skill in itself to get people to agree you're dealing with cultures that are not necessarily up to date on what you're doing and they might be curious or even threatened by some of your studies yes anthropologists pride ourselves
0: on living with the people we study. We call it participant observation. And that helps to begin with. It's one that you're living there in the village. You're not just rolling up, saying, here I am. Please, you know, run on this treadmill. (laughs) or, Or, you know, breathe into this bag or something like this. Typically what we do is, I, for example, have affiliations with the Bolivian Institute of High Altitude Biology. And so they know why I'm there. One of their representatives will go with me to meet um, the local government and explain what we're doing. Then the Bolivian Institute and the local government and I will go to the village area where I'm interested, and we'll meet with the village elders, and we'll explain again. And then curiosity gets aroused, and more people come and you explain. So we do a lot of explanation before we ever meet a single individual. And then once you meet the, each individual, and usually I hire someone to recruit, and they go out in the community and explain again. And then we invite people in. Uh, off. Sometimes there'll be someone who will say, you know, my husband, for example, has been the guinea pig. And you know, dozens of people come and watch me measure him. <laughs> and then they say, that looks okay. And, and, and they figure, well, he'll volunteer. It'll be okay with us. So, part of getting people to agree is explaining very clearly what we're doing and why we're doing. Now, it's hard to use words like DNA, and you have to talk about heredity and family lines, or you have to talk about blood and breathing, and most high-altitude natives know that they're special. And they know that they're special because they can work at altitude They don't get sick at altitude, and they know that foreigners do. They see the foreigners puffing and puffing. Yeah, and and so explaining that I'm interested in how they do it makes perfect sense. The actual measurements that I make, then I have to explain why I do each measurement, but the the bigger question makes sense
1: to them. There's a fair amount of psychology in your work when you're in the (laughs) field, isn't there?
0: You have to keep thinking about what would you want to know, if someone came from a
1: foreign country and asked you to do something that you uh, were puzzled by. Do they express any interest in the results, or do you ever have people asking about them? They're
0: more interested in their own results than they are in the average results, and they want to know, am I healthy, things like that.
1: That's probably the same the world over.
0: I think you're probably right. And the thing is, is that I usually can't tell them, because it's not a clinical evaluation so I, I can only say, well, this measurement is what it is. And so some, it can be unsatisfying.
1: They're probably equating it with your being an MD or something. No, they are. Yeah, right. And
0: so I have to indicate that I'm not. In some cases, I've worked with MDs, and so we have been able to give people physicals, and we have been able to arrange to um, have medicines for people who need it, for example.
1: That would be a nice Yeah, it's a nice training. gesture.
0: But then there's even the greater confusion between me and
1: medicine. Does it typically take you a great amount of time to design these studies? And I guess you would do that while you're at Case Western. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. Just like writing any other grant proposal. You kind of have to
0: think about what questions and how can you measure it. And then, in my case, the second level of, can I measure it in the field? Can I measure it reliably in the field? Will it work with the generator? Will that equipment work under low uh, barometric pressure? Will it work outside a lab? And then will this be acceptable to,
1: culturally acceptable to the population? Have you come up against any big snags that have surprised you as you've gone along? Unforeseen (laughs) surprises? I have been very surprised by some completely unexpected uh,
0: things that it turns out people were reacting to. And when I measure this, pu- use this pulse oximeter to measure oxygen saturation. You have to have a good flow of blood to the finger. I keep holding my finger <laughs> like this because you put a little, a uh, kind of a glove, a, a, a little clip almost over over the the tip of the index finger. And in order to ensure that there's adequate blood flow, I use a hand warmer. I, you may have seen these at mountaineering stores. It's a little clear plastic bag of clear liquid it has a metal disc in it. You click the metal disc and uh, the clear liquid turns white and it gives off heat. So I have people holding their hands there to keep their hands warm. And people commented, oh, this is fun, you know, keeping your hands warm. And I just was using it standardly. And then in one study in, in Bolivia, during uh, studies, I always ask a certain percent of people to come back to be remeasured it's so that I can establish the repeatability of the study. And one woman came back, she had volunteered for her second measurement. She said, I'm not afraid of the fat sucking machine at all. And I said, What? And it turned out that because this little clear white. bag turned white, they thought that I was sucking fat. And well, there is a, a pish taco involved in medicine and evil doing in the Andes and he sucks fat. So people had been thinking that I was sucking fat. We spent a lot of time after that <laughs> making sure that people understood that there was no way for fat to get out and in. And so,
1: forth. so the other had been going on for a while before you
0: found out? Yes. It was just luck that she mentioned that.
1: You could start a nice little business over here stateside. <laughs> I told her that. I said, you know, if I could really
0: do that, I could be making a lot of money in America.
1: <laughs> what would you say is your most exciting moment in your research? Has there been one peak?
0: Oh, well, that's a good question. Well, there have been several. Really determining that Tibetans could live at high altitude without high hemoglobin concentration was very exciting. I think when the statistical geneticist told me that he'd found evidence for a major gene for oxygen saturation, that was really exciting. Because in order to really make a demonstration that evolution has occurred, eventually we have to be able to work down to allele frequencies and and genetics. And this was, okay, you know,
1: now, (laughs) well, it's not out of the way, but this is an
0: important first step to getting that out. So that was very exciting. The exhaled nitric oxide was very exciting because all of the evidence from sea level people was that people should have low levels of exhaled nitric oxide, but they kept having high. Actually, maybe that but at first that was anxiety producing because I kept thinking that maybe the machine wasn't working correctly oh. <laughs> at altitude. So that was exciting, but it took a little while to calm down and say, okay, it's not a machine
1: error. It's, it's real. I guess I can dampen it for a little while if you're worried about <laughs> that. Are there things that you're specifically trying to find now that would be as exciting or more exciting, like you have an ultimate result that you'd like to find in the near future? Well, two things I think are particularly interesting. One
0: will be figuring out what is accounting for this major gene for oxygen saturation. And that's going to involve things like genome scans, candidate gene analysis, and Those are things that we're lining up in conjunction with statistical geneticists and so forth. The other avenue of investigation that will be very exciting will be associating that major gene with measures of fitness. Is it associated with better ability to do work with higher uh, fertility, higher offspring survival? That will be important also, actually looking for other evidence of natural selection.
1: With the, with the same gene that's related to. Mm-hmm. And then
0: I think another really exciting avenue of uh, investigation will be following up on these Ethiopians to see, well, how mm-hmm. can they do it? You know, What is allowing them to extract more oxygen from the air? Which it seems to be what they're doing, since even their blood isn't hypoxic. They must somehow be taking up more from the air better.
1: How could a person do that? I mean, what, what physiological, yeah. what
0: physical? There, there are a couple of possibilities that are hypothetical. One is that there could be slight differences in the type of hemoglobin so that their hemoglobin has higher oxygen affinity. We thought we had eliminated that as a possibility by looking at the type of hemoglobin they had and the evidence is that they have normal hemoglobin. So we don't think that that's what's going on, but it still remains a possibility. Another possibility are are other biochemical changes, like pH in the blood. Another possibility is that they have very good perfusion of their lungs, much better than other people, so that there's a greater surface
1: area, greater blood flow through the lungs. I guess that would be a difficult thing to determine because you have to get a hold of lungs or you can do that with um, imaging we
0: can do that with imaging. Um, we could do that for example, with echo Doppler, we could look at uh, cardiac output and we could look at pulmonary artery pressures and things like that, so that will be coming soon, That'll be soon. <laughs> and the
1: hemoglobin studies that you just mentioned would have to take tissue or just blood but that's a little step beyond what you've been doing in the past, right in terms no, of in- I, I
0: have been taking yeah. blood samples, mm-hmm. yeah, people um are, once you explain how much, I take small blood samples, so, and explain how much it is and what we'll do with it, and some people decide they don't want to, but most people decide it's okay.
1: Are they some of the same people that you've done other studies with in in some cases? In some cases,
0: yes. There are some communities where I've returned, people know me. So it's a little probably easier to... So they say, oh, I remember her, (laughs) and... Uh, Last summer when I was in Tibet, someone said to me, you know, you look just like an American who was here a couple of years ago. (laughs) And I said, I was that American. (laughs) That's
1: why. So you have quite a few things in the hopper. Are there any any areas you wish other people doing research could get done so that you could get on with what you're doing?
0: It would be wonderful if more people were working at altitude on indigenous populations. A lot of people are interested in altitude because of climbing is, is one area. People are interested because of the possibility of developing training regimes for athletes. Train high, sleep low, sleep high, train low, you know, all sorts of combinations like that. It would be very exciting if more people got involved in studying the genetics and the physiology of high altitude populations.
1: What about space exploration issues, uh, NASA, it sounds like some, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if there's a parallel there, but uh, certainly things go on when you go into space with the blood. Yeah, well that's microgravity, we're, we're talking <laughs> a little bit,
0: at re- altitude we're talking a small reduction right. in, in barometric pressure, not microgravity. Um, there might be some, some parallels. I've often thought it would be fun to ride the Vomit Comet. It's
1: <laughs> nicely named. Yes, so nicely named. I, I know that it has a more polite name, but right now I don't remember it. Well, you could see how the high altitude people do on it versus the. Oh, now there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should. Be. So you have many areas that you're investigating now, mm-hmm. and so many that you've covered so far. Is there a ultimate area that you're? Is it the the evolution question? Yes. Is that really the? That's the question. The, big the question will that. It would be wonderful
0: to be able to answer is what are some of the genetic loci that are associated with successful adaptation to high altitude, and do the allele frequencies of those genes
1: differ in these three high altitude populations? So the high altitude populations are the model system for studying mm-hmm. evolution of yes. humans. Mm-hmm. They are uh, they're an interesting model, very exciting. No small feat. <laughs> yeah. From the standpoint of
0: sea level people, it also has some interesting implications because scientists have looked for a long time at can we predict who's going to adapt well to high altitude because there are things like high altitude pulmonary edema and high altitude cerebral edema that lowlanders like ourselves have a risk for when we Mm -hmm. go to altitude abruptly. And we've been not successful at coming up with some way of measuring your risk or my risk. And one of the things that these high-altitude studies suggest is that maybe it's because we've been looking for a single response that's successful. Now we look at these high-altitude populations and we say, gee, it seems like there must be a a variety of ways to respond. So this high-altitude work then may turn around and be useful for identifying combinations of traits in sea-level people that will allow us to predict who's at risk, and who needs to you know, take bottle oxygen with him when he goes skiing or something.
1: So they're a great model population in many ways, and mm-hmm. forgetting getting the parameters or the perimeters, <laughs> whichever the case may be. Well, it's great work, and congratulations Thank on you. all of it. And good luck with all the following. It sounds like you can use more people in the field. So.
0: We could. <laughs> the thing about working in the field is that it's enormously expensive in time and effort, and it's very productive but it's costly. Sounds very gratifying. It is. When you asked about my mission it really is to be able to identify. You can tell that I'm assuming my hypothesis but I really would like to be able to demonstrate that natural selection has worked differently in these three populations. So I know that that sounds grandiose but you have to start working your way towards it. Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.